because when I think of the Old Testament, I think of the beginning of the story. <laughs> Sorry. You glare at me all day. You're the one holding the mic. <laughs> What's, what, what is the key to holding it and not doing that? I don't know. Okay. So it's the beginning of the story. Is that what you said, Scott? Yeah, the beginning of everything. Beginning of the story of everything. Okay, somebody else said something over here. Well, I just remember crawling up in bed with my mother every night. We worked all day long, so this was our only time together. And how she read stories at the Old Testament, the Bible story book. Mm -hmm. And what and what what did that do for you? Well, it just it prepared me for Christ. I don't know how I would have Did you hear, Tony? Her mother read her those stories. She would crawl up in bed. Her mother would read her the Old Testament stories, probably about a lot of the people. And I love what you said. It prepared me for Christ, for the need, to, for knowing that I needed a Savior. Exactly. It's foundational. Yeah. It's foundational. Mm -hmm. Lynn, I saw you go back there. Um, since we, as Gentiles, we are grafted in, we are adopted into the family. And you know, if, you, if somebody's adopted, they want to know about their our family and so as grafted in adopted in it's like getting to see the history of our family that we're adopted into you know that's one of the reasons I have on there I heard the best sermon years and years and years ago by a gentleman I can David Lawson talk about um, this is our and these are our people the, the Old Testament people are our people if you don't have a good family tree or, you know, some people, we just don't have as much family as others. You want, you want to see who your family is? You want to go back and look at your ancestry? This is it. These are your people. These are them. I, I, turn, I turn 60 this week. Now, Jim, that's getting old, although I don't use the word old. And one thing, I, the thing I am giving to myself for my birthday is a DNA test. Because I know some of my ancestry. I know I'm Sicilian, and I know I, according to my cousins who have done it, I'm part Haitian. We have um, Haitian relatives, yes. Yes, there are um, black people in the, in the family. Um, we met them. That's an interesting story. Have I ever told you all that story in here? My mother was doing genealogy before she died. And she'd even gone to Sicily to do some genealogy there, but she found a first cousin in New Orleans, and they corresponded back and forth to each other. This was pre-internet days, and corresponded back and forth, and decided they would meet, and my mother and my stepfather drove to New Orleans to meet Louis Mayhe, and they opened the door, and Louis is black, and my mother is white, and they didn't know that. They didn't know that. And then they started doing some research, and that's another story of how they found that out. So very interesting. But I've got another side of the family I know nothing about. So that's part of my, my gift to myself is I'm going to do that and find out about the, the, my father's side. Where do these people come from? But, but my spiritual tree, my spiritual ancestry tree is right there in the pages of this Bible. These are my people. 
Some of them I want to own. Some of them are family members you kind of wish were not on the family tree, right? They're, they're less admirable, but they're still there. So, other reasons. Somebody else have other reasons why we, we really should love the Old Testament? All the prophecies. The what? All the prophecies. Okay. And who do those prophecies point to? Yes. They point to Jesus. Exactly. Exactly. Other thoughts? Yeah. The, the Old Testament is our dictionary. It's our word bank and our image bank for everything in the Gospels. All the people that were writing the Gospels were Old Testament people. And so that was the language they used. <coughs> Yeah, I said this before when we were doing Judges. If you said, why should we study the Old Testament, that would be a very strange question to pose to someone like Paul, who that's all he had was the Old Testament scriptures. That's where the New Testament writers quoted from. That's where Jesus quoted from. Those were the scriptures. If I, It is my dictionary. If I'm going to understand what they're talking about, I've got to go back to the Old Testament. I'm not even going to understand why the Jews were looking for a Messiah. Why were they looking for a Messiah? Why were they looking for a king if I don't go back to the old? So it is, it is my foundational book. It is the whole story, really. It's the, 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 the complete story of, you know, I love that timeline. I love y'all's doing the timelines in the current series. Love it. I love a good timeline. And I love what we have up on the wall in the sanctuary. <laughs> that we have, that, and you should memorize this if you don't know it, creation, fall, redemption, which is right there at the cross, and ultimately complete restoration. I love that. And that's, this, this book is this story. It is one complete story. It is all falls under the umbrella of God's redemptive story. To read the new without understanding the old is like reading the end of a novel and you didn't read the beginning. Has anybody, follow my thinking, has anybody in here, I know Jen has watched the series Broadchurch? Anybody else? Okay, imagine watching the second season and you didn't watch the first. Somebody is doing so that. Silly. Well, <laughs> Tim and Kay Blackburn are doing that. Doesn't that doesn't make any sense. I, exactly. It's like the second half of Law and Order every week. That makes no sense. It makes no sense. When, when they told us they were watching it and I made reference to something that happened at the beginning, oh, we haven't seen the first season. We're just watching the second. Why are you only watching the second? Well, that's all that's running right now. We missed the first. I said, well, you're kind of wasting your time. You can't even watch the third without watching first, the first and the second, even though it's a different storyline. Has the third come out? Oh, yeah. <gasps> oh, has it really? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I know what we're doing this weekend. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Good. Well, Broad Church is good. But if, if you, you take something like that, you cannot watch the second season of Broad Church and really understand Broad Church. It's broad, B-R-O-A-D, church. It's all one word. It, it's set in a, um, it's in the English countryside. It's kind of a, a made-up town, broad church. There, There is a murder. 
and, and then it goes from there. It's, it's excellent, excellent. So trying to pick up the New Testament and read the stories of Jesus, to read the coming of the gospel in Jesus Christ, and to really think you're going to understand that without going all the way back here, you will understand it because that's the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of his word, but you won't really understand it. You will not have the full, what I call the full potency of who Christ is as your Savior, as your Messiah, as your faith, merciful and faithful high priest, as the one who is the fulfillment of the old covenant and who is the Passover lamb, the perfect spotted lamb, the sacrificial lamb. You would, those, those words, those concepts will be so shallow without going all the way back here. They really will be. Those of you all that did Hebrews last, last year, you kind of got a taste of that, didn't you? Would you agree with that? It came alive in a way that it had not come alive before. Exactly. So it is, his, it is his entire story. It is the historical setting for the emergence of Christianity is another way of saying that. Christianity wasn't formed out of a vacuum. It started clear back here is where it began. And you know, another thing of looking at this timeline, I think from the time when we look at the New Testament, we're recording about, what, 60, 60 to 100 years of history. But all of this is around 4,000 years of history of God dealing with man of God dealing with Israel, and it's out of Israel, and his working with Israel that Jesus came. It is through Israel that Jesus came. Israel was God's chosen nation, his chosen people, that he chose out from all the other nations of the world because he loved them, not because anything was more righteous about them, but he set them apart and said, I will be your God. You will be my people. I am giving you the old covenant to enter into with me. And it is through this old covenant. And it is through you. It is through the tribe of Judah that I'm going to bring forth the ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ, the king priest who will sit on the throne forever, who will give you redemption and forgiveness and salvation from sin that started way back here. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve made that fatal mistake and ate that forbidden fruit, that God had said, whatever you do, don't do this one thing. And when that came and the curse came, the curse stayed, death entered in, and God had to send. God had to take care of us. He, we could not save ourselves. God himself had to give himself to save us from himself. And all of this, from in the beginning God in Genesis 1-1 to the last word in Revelation is one complete story of what God is doing in his creation with, with his creation for our benefit, for our redemption. One redemptive story. How can you read part of it and not the whole thing? Thoughts? Okay. That is one. One is the fact that it is a whole story. 
Another one is exactly what I shared with you. I can't, I don't, it, I don't feel like I really understand what, who Christ is and what he did, apart from going back here. When, when I go back to the Old Testament and I see things like what we will see next week in the Abrahamic covenant and what was promised and what God did through Abram, through barren Abram and Sarai, when I look at the Old Covenant, the law, and the sacrificial system, and the, and the tabernacle, the priesthood, all of that, when I study that, when I look at the Passover in Exodus and what happened when they came out and those lambs were slaughtered and the blood was post, put on the doorposts so that their firstborn would not be killed when the angel of death came through, when I read those things and study them and understand them, and then I go to the New Testament and read who Jesus is, it gives me a greater appreciation for what he did for me. It becomes richer for me. Um, another one for me that I wrote down is it helps me understand me better. When we look at the Old Testament, when we look at these stories of these people, and the events involving these people, our ancestors, our, our, our people that we've been adopted in, they reveal a lot about what humanity is like. And it's not very pretty because the curse and sin has entered in. And it's easy to look back and kind of backseat drive or quarterback from the stands and say, why on earth did they do that? Why on earth did Abram and Sarah go into Hagar and produce Ishmael? Well, it's real easy because we have the whole story. We have all the missing pieces. They had bits and pieces of revelation and didn't even have the scriptures in their hands. What, something I put in your, lesson, your very first lesson is Abraham, when God's speaking to him, Moses hadn't even been born yet for 400 years to even write the first five books. So imagine what he has to hang on to and the amount of faith that he had to walk by on based on what God had said where he spoke to him in just little snippets. But what I learned from those people is a lot about humankind and about us. This, these are ancient people in an ancient time and an ancient culture. But one thing you'll find out is they're really not any different than us. They have some of the same hopes, the same dreams, the same desires, the same fears, the same longings. They will do the same kind of things we do where we look to idols. Our idols just look different than ours, looking for that fulfillment, for security, for safety, for peace in them. They will make the same, we will make the same foolish decisions that they make, even though we have the gospel, we have the completed word of God, and we have the Holy Spirit sealed within us, and they did not. But, I, but they, these, these Old Testament scriptures reveal a lot about mankind. And in fact, I'm going to encourage you each week, two questions I'm going to encourage you with is one, what do you learn about man this week? What do you learn about mankind? Because God is revealing, this is who you are, and this is why you need me, and why you need a Savior. And the other thing, that this is the next reason, Teresa, is to me it really reveals who God is. And I will ask that every week in your homework. What did you learn about God this week? How did you see him? What did you see about him? Because he is in this if you think he revealed himself in the 60 years here, imagine how he revealed himself in 4,000 years. And during all this time, 
You see God patient, being patient with his people, waiting, pursuing, reaching out to them, revealing himself to them. He, ne he never, never gives up on his creation. He is always reaching out to unfaithful, desperate man. Does that make sense? And so that, that also, here's another reason I thought, when I come, when I get that full picture and I begin to see, and, and Jim, you've helped me with this more than anybody because you repeat it frequently, is the story's not about me. It's his. I just get to be a part of it. And when, the more I'm reminded of that, that this is his story, and I'm just, I'm not even a dot on the board, but I get to be a part of it. That is very humbling to me. And I'll tell you what it also does is I see God revealed. Too often people struggle with the Old Testament because they think God is cruel, God is mean. But you're not reading it in context and you're really not understanding it if you think that. Or if you think that God is different in the Old than he is in the New. That somehow he was cruel and judgmental in the Old, but he's loving and giving in the new. God is the same. He has not changed at all. You just don't have the full scope of who he is. And when you do, you know what it causes you to do? To worship. To worship him more deeply because you know him more deeply. It causes me to trust him more. When I see he has his hand on all this, I can trust that he has his hand on my little minute of history here. Even if I'm struggling with it, even if it's painful, even if I don't understand it, I can step back and look at this and say, wow, he's got it, and I don't need to worry about it. And I may not understand it, but I, he is so great and so magnificent, I can just trust it. But seeing him revealed in these pages of the Old Testament helped me trust him more and worship him more. Did y'all see that? Thoughts? Any thoughts running through your mind of why it's valuable to you? Yes. I, I think in, in the New Testament is really more about, like you're saying, a lot of people say it's more about loving God. We really need to understand who God is and mm -hmm. how powerful He is. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's kind of love in the Old Testament. He loves us. Yeah, exactly. Did y'all hear her? Okay. Go ahead. That was a wonderful point. It's, the more we study God and his nature, his character, how he reacts, it's just like a spouse or a good friend. I know what's going to set off Sam before it even happens. I know how he's going to react because I know him. Drop it back down, get a new perspective, you know who, who to serve. 
who's got who's in control. Mm -hmm. Well, here, here's another thing that's kind of interesting. Number one, a statistic. Between 79 and 80% of the biblical text. So there's a young man I'm discipling right now who doesn't go to our church. And um, he's two light bearers, actually. Really neat kid named Dylan. And so I asked him, do you have a Bible? Because I wanted to get him one. I love buying people Bibles. Everybody needs a Bible. You know, I love Bible. Do you have a Bible? And he gave me, he looked, he looked at me and he went, well, I have one of these. And I said, hey, by the way, he said, you know, the church I go to, everything's on the screen. And I said, well, actually, sadly, not sadly, us too. Um, but the, the problem with this is this doesn't give you perspective of the Bible. So it just gives me a few verses in Romans 10 that I'm teaching. But it doesn't really give me that Romans 10 is like half of a page of a 1,600-page book. And that's 79.6, that's I think is what it is, 79.6% of the Bible is before you get to Matthew 1. Mm -hmm. So 79.6%. It's good for us to just remember that. So to look at the biblical text and in terms of its weight, and I don't even think every page is equal. Like I, I like what you said, Nancy. Yeah. Not every page is equal, but still, 80% of Ryan's idea, I was going to say before he said it, uh, the dictionary, I was going to say language. Like It gives us a language. It teaches us concepts like atonement and sacrifice. So without that, you'll never get it. So 79.6% of the Bible is before you get to Matthew 1. But not only that, but going back to what Tony said, um, the biblical material covers thousands and thousands of years. So I always go back to the Abraham to Jim Johnson is the same as Abraham to Adam. At least it is. I mean, it might even be more. So from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12 is the same from Genesis 12 to Jim Johnson. So just think about that. The same God existing, and who, who is one, right? And we're learning in Ryan's theology class on the triunity of God. That he's one. So he's not schizophrenic. He doesn't change over time. So he's one God. This is what the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation. He's one. And so we need to understand that. So here's, here's the other step. So not just 79.6. The other one I'll give you would be 60, which is the number of years that Matthew to Revelation covers. So roughly 29 AD, maybe 26 to 96. So maybe 70 years. So you, to, to look at what God does over a 70-year time span anywhere in the Bible and then try to think that we understand would be foolish. Now, by the way, those 70 are the greatest 70 ever, right? Like that, that first three years after Jesus starts his ministry is the greatest time the world has ever and will ever see until it gets fixed completely with the second coming. And so I'm not even saying they're equal. But to go back and say why it's so bad is, imagine looking at, you know, comparatively speaking, imagine looking at five years of American history and then trying to judge all of American history by those five years. Yeah. If they're the five most prosperous, you're going to be deceived. If they're the five most troublesome, you're going to be deceived. They don't tell the American story. Mm -hmm. The same thing true biblically. Mm -hmm. To look at 60 years and say, this is who, this is all I can know about God then it, it, it really it undoes the fullness of the unit, the, the triune nature of who he is. And so it's, it really is rather foolish, even though I still have no problem arguing that the New Testament is what we use to understand the old. I still have no problem arguing it is the climax of the entire narrative. I still have no problem doing any of those things, but it is the climax of the narrative. Mm -hmm. And it is the 60 that explain the 6,000. <laughs> it's not just the 60. 
and it was never intended to be the 60s. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that is what I was just teaching this young man, Dylan, that as I was describing him, I did in an hour and a half, Adam to Samuel on the board. This guy literally doesn't know much. I didn't grow up in church, knows anything. And he just went, okay, why doesn't everybody, like why? <laughs> he was just dumbfounded as I was just doing the outline of this. He's like, wow, this, this really, you need to know this stuff, don't you? Uh, yeah. And he said, yeah, because the problem is, like without this, none of what I'm hearing about Jesus really makes sense. None of what I'm hearing about, and so that's kind of how it fits together. So we don't even need to feel bad. We don't even have to pit. It's the same thing, you know, in the triune tri nature of God. We never need to pit Jesus over and against the Holy Spirit or the, or the Father over and against the Son because they're perfect in unison. And so we don't have to pit one attribute of God over another because he is all of them all. And so it's not like God's relaxed in the old, and, and you've heard me say this many times on the circuit myself, but I, I love thinking about 80%, and I love thinking about 60 or 70 years, and going, oh, that's why I was dumb, because I forgot perspective. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Other thoughts? When, when I, um, I'm going to leave you with one thing, and then we're going to be done with this portion. Um, I know the, the guys were reading um, The Knowledge of the Holy. Oh, baby. Girls know how to click Amazon and buy our own copies and form our own groups, which a couple of us did. Love this book. It's Mine candy. It's, it is wonderful if you've not read it. It's simple. It's easy. The chapters are short, but it is loaded, loaded with thoughts and meditations about who God is. And one that just particularly stuck out at me when I say this is how I really come to know who God is and all the facets of who he is when I include the Old Testament. And to me, it brings a richer thing. But one thing that stood out when he was talking about the immutability of God, he said, in this world where men forget us, change their attitude toward us as their private interests dictate and revise their opinion of us for the slightest cause, it is not the source of wondrous, is it not the source of wondrous strength to know that the God with whom we have to have to do changes not. That is his attitude us now is the same is as it was in eternity past and it will be in eternity to come. What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from himself. In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. He all, he's always receptive to our misery and need, as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours, nor set aside periods when he will see no one. Neither does he change his mind about anything. Today, this moment, he feels toward his creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. God never changes moods or cools off in his affections, or loses enthusiasm. That's what I see when I look at all of it. I see him as enthusiastic and pursuing me and loving me as much today as he was way back here in Millennial, and that it is constant and it has not changed. And then that makes me want to know him better, to serve him more. It convicts me of my sin, and it causes me to worship him. So that's why 
why we got, we're going to spend time in the Old Testament. Okay? Yes, Norma? It's called the uh, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer. You can get it for practically nothing. So it's a, it's a marking book. Mark it up. Okay. All right. Short break, Jim, and then you're, you'll be yep. ready? Okay. Um, obviously, we're not going to be jumping into Genesis 17, and uh, I, I think what Nancy shared with us hopefully was motivational and inspirational. That's what we try to do at the beginning. It's, it's, uh, we're about to get into some what we'd call like a spiritual, like a, not a slugfest, that's more of a hostility, but I mean like a, a grind. There is. There's a, there's a work that is needed. Um, looking forward to a staff retreat that's coming up, and I don't know why we haven't done this before. But uh, we're in October, we're going to be leaving. We have two retreats a year. One is to do calendar planning. And then the other one is to try to grow as a staff, to try to become more like Jesus and sit down together and go through a book or something like that. And finally, I thought, man, we have all these amazing resources that have been so helpful for me in my past at the college. And so what we decided to do was pick like our four favorite professors and then to ask them to give us lectures on some things. And so really excited about some guys, hopefully you'll even be hearing from in the near future, that are going to come down and have speak. You heard Mark Scott speak not that long ago. He's going to be teaching on what it means to work hard. What does it mean to work hard? Like, I mean, I'm not just talking like work ethic. Yeah, we should all work hard so that we can drive nicer cars and live in nicer houses and have more you know, reputation in our community. No, it's like it's Paul describing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that how, you know, he says in First Thessalonians, how hard I worked among you, how I labored among you, how I labored so that I wouldn't be a burden to you. And he's drawing their attention to this because why? Because we work hard for the gospel. We work hard for the kingdom because of our love for God and because of God's love for people. And so we sacrifice ourselves, don't we? And that to work hard is what I, I can't wait to hear what Mark says about it because he really did. He taught me. In, in, in many ways, how to work hard for the name of Christ, how to sacrifice myself and sometimes even my family. I know that's a, it's, a, it's not a popular thing to say. Jesus said to do it, but it's not popular to say. Um, even in the church, it's not popular to say, but there is a sacrifice that is made. And Jesus comments on this, actually. He doesn't say, by the way, don't love your families, but he does say this. We need to love God more than our families. And by that way, I would argue very strongly, we love our families best. By teaching my wife, you're not the center of my world, sweetheart. Contrary to the movies that we just watched, you're not the center of my world. And, and by the way, like, boys, I love you. To, I really do. I love you. And I'll love you until you're dead. But when you die, should that happen in my lifetime, like, my life's going to go on. You're going to get married and move out, and my life's going to go on. You may not spend eternity with me, and my life is going to go on. Therefore, to take you and make you the center is actually a really dangerous thing to do. So I love you as children. I love you as wife. I love you as family. And I love God as God. And it's important, isn't it? So what do we do? And what we're going to be doing this semester is we are going to work hard. We're going to study hard. We're going to say, yeah, there's a time to sit back and to reflect on how nice God is. There really is. Sit in a meadow, sand by a brook. I mean, on a, you need to, if you've not done that, you need to do that. Take a day off and go out to Lake Carl Blackwell and just sit and watch and just admire God in his goodness and in his... If you don't do that, something's wrong with you. And I would argue something is lacking in you. You need to do that. 
And then you need to, at some time in your life, you need to look at the biblical text and say, I am going to understand you better. You'll never get to perfect. I'm going to understand you better, and I'm going to submit to you. And what you're telling me about God and about me and about the world around me, I'm going to take my life, and I'm going to mold it to what God's revelation says. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard emotionally. It's going to be hard mentally. It just needs to be. And that's why I love this class, actually. That's why I think it's a privilege that you allow me to do this. Uh, that's why I'm excited. I think Ryan's letting me teach a couple of classes in our School of Theology program on Monday nights. We're talking about the Trinity, the triunity of God. Why? Because I don't understand it as well as I could, and I will be better for it for eternity. One of the problems that a lot of Christians have is that we look at life, and we kind of consider this to be our lives. And so we have in our mindset, kind of like, well, when I die, then I'll go to heaven and I'll know everything. Christians believe this. And so what I really need to do is you really need to know your Bible because, you know, you could live another, I don't know, you look like you're 20. So you're going to, you could live another 60 years. So you got 60 years, you should know your Bible. Right? Do you know that a lot of Christians actually like operate under that? You got 60 years, you know, so you get to go to OSU games on Saturday and then the rest of your time, some of it, you should probably actually read your Bible for the next 60 years. No. Like, I think I'll be looking at Scripture for eternity. I'll be dealing with who God is for eternity. So I don't consider, um, right, I love what um, uh, J.I. Packer says when he went blind. He said, man, I'm just, I'm so grateful for uh, the eyes that God gave me and the years that God gave me. I'm so grateful for the scriptures that I, that I have memorized. But the good news is, is I will see again someday. Right now he's blind, but I will see again someday. And I will continue to learn. He, he is still blind, trying, and it's probably 90s, late 90s, trying to know more about God. Why, JR, dude, chill. Right? Like you're 90. Like just relax. And he's like, no, but you don't understand. God is my greatest obsession. I want to know him. Like I want to know him more. I want to know him more faithfully. I want to know the truth about him. If I said to you, hey, you know what? Andrew and I have been married now for like 20-ish years, like almost 30 years. Kind of, I don't know. What else is there to know? She's changed her hair color. I can recognize her, right? I fell in love with blondes. I always say blondes, but now I'm married to a redhead. So whenever I say, yeah, I just have always loved blondes more than anybody else, my wife goes, hello. <laughs> and if I ever just said to you, yeah, you know what? I, I just, I don't know. She just doesn't interest me anymore. You don't go, wow, what devotion. You, you kind of ask the question because you're good Christian folk. Like, what's wrong with you? What about God? Is he worth your time and attention and your devotion? And do you love him more because you know him more? I, I think that there, there are times I've loved God because I've believed wrong things about God. Think about that for a moment. I've loved him because I believed wrong things about him. So here I am with the wrong belief about God, that God loves me more than anything else in the universe. More than anything, God loves me. More than anything else, God loves me. And I believed that. I preached it. And then I moved along, and I found out, no, he loves himself more than anything else in the universe. Oh, wow, now what do I do? I need to stop and think about this. Like, I had a wrong, and, and when I felt like God loved me, kind of because of me, I mean, it made me feel good. You ever been there? 
made me feel good. It's kind of like when I knew that Andrea loved me because of me. Because of how awesome I was. Because in our relationship, I was able to kind of cover up all the dark spots in my life. You know, we weren't married yet. And so she didn't have to wake up to me. She didn't have to kind of deal with Jim at 40. Right? My pregnant years. Like she never really had to. She didn't have to deal with that yet. I mean, I got married. I weighed 144 pounds. Like I looked amazing. And so everybody understood. Yeah, we all know why Jim or Andrea loves Jim. Look at him. He's wonderful. Right? And I was. I was, I was wonderful. But then you, you got to get to know me, right? I mean, you remember when I first showed up here and you liked me 13 years ago? And now all of a sudden you know me and you're like, ah. Except for Genevieve. She's always loved me. But the rest of you have kind of had to learn to put up with me. And by the way, isn't that like relationship? And so here I love God because of all these ideas I have about God. And then I begin to study. I think this is one of the reasons why people don't want to study is because they don't want their ideas about God to be challenged or changed. Because if I love God because he loves me more than anything else, and then I find out he doesn't love me more than anything else, like I'm, I'm questioning not just this idea that I had, but the feeling attached to that idea that I had. I'd rather just go Sunday school and just kind of maybe have a, kind of a, just a quick lesson and then kind of go on with my life. And we're going, no, 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 we're going to do the heavy lifting here. And we're going, to, we're going to deal with, even as much as we're dealing with it somewhat topically, as Nancy was describing, we're going to be dealing with it exegetically in the text. And we're going to be dealing with theologically across the scriptures. So we're going to be dealing with some heavy lifting. Why? I just want to say two things to you. Number one, the greatest thing, one of the greatest things I've ever been given is all of my Sunday school teachers who felt this incredible need to teach me the Bible. I grew up in the non-instrumental Church of Christ. And if there's one thing they knew how to do, and do it well, and do it passionately, is to teach the Bible. I just remember as a young boy, I mean, a lot of that, a lot of what I know is because I've spent a lot of time in Sunday school classes, and all they taught was the Bible. That's it. Today we're going to be learning about the 12 sons of Jacob, and how they become the 12 tribes of Israel. Are you ready? Let's think about this. And then it would, and by the way, that's just lunchtime with my father, okay? <laughs> and then we would go to church, and it would be the same thing over and 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 over. Now, I was one of those guys that actually, I love, I love, I even love biblical trivia. Like, I love being able to kind of connect the dots. I love timelines that you describe, right? But I love memorizing timelines. I don't just love seeing Ryan describe it. On his, I love going, no, I want one of those on my own so I can understand it and memorize it and be able to think it through. Like, that's just my nature, by the way. I'm not even saying that has to be yours, but it's mine. And I really am grateful for those people that said, hey, by the way, let's put this in your head. Who built the ark? Who built the ark? Who built the ark? Quick, 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 quick. Uh, Noah. Noah built the ark. And I learned that. Who led God's people out of Egypt? Uh, Moses. Um, I remember there was a time in high school, you could only get away with this if it's either the early 80s, late 70s, or you're in the Church of Christ. <laughs> uh, and they would actually have, for our youth group time, they would have tests for our youth group time. That was like, that wasn't Sunday school youth group. That was, hey, we're going to gather together and we're going to be tested over our knowledge of the scriptures. So we would go to someone's house and they would give us like a text or a, a book of the Bible, and then we had to um, we had to be prepared for the test for youth group time. And by the way, this is what we called fun. And I'll never part of this is the competitive side, 
But I just remember thinking there was a girl, she was two years younger than me, she was from Texas, I lived in Canada at the time, she was from Texas, Carmen Rolf. And Carmen, her dad worked in the oil industry, I think worked for Dow at the time. And I, she was really, really smart, two years younger than me. And I just remember when the first time we ever had one of these tests, Carmen beat me. And I remember just thinking to myself, that is never going to happen again. <laughs> and it never did. Boom, Carmen Rolf. I mean, it was just like, this is not happening. And so I would just pour myself into memorizing all of these things. And I know how to do that. I really do. I know how to study. I don't think I'm smart, but I know how to study for tests. I know how to be educated. And so I did that. And so I knew lots of Bible facts. Always. I've always had. My wife looks at me and just, I wish I had that memory. And I'm like, but part of it is an interest. How many of you are like trivia freaks? Like you're just like anybody else? Like you just, you have tons of those things in your mind. It's not all of us. But I would, I would see that and it would be given to me. And I would be like, man, I love to know those things. I love to know um, like when they lived and how old they were and when they died. And, what was, and so I'm always spending my time doing this. And I really am grateful for biblical content that has been given to me. I'm grateful for that. And then I remember going, weirdly enough, not Bible college, but it was seminary. So I'd already been to what I thought was the greatest place in the world, Ozark Christian College. And I, I was blown away by everything that they taught me. But it's not until seminary. And I'm sitting in a exegetical class of, of the Hebrew scriptures with by far and away one of the most, I hope he doesn't hear this, I love you, Dr. Hall, um, but one of the most boring teachers I've ever had in my life. But I loved him. Andrea, I, had a, I did a video with him, a video series with him, uh, a class that I took, and I would be sitting in our living room, and I'd be listening to him, and I've always loved Dr. Hall. And Andrea would come in, and she'd say, how can you do this? Because Dr. Hall, the Hebrew scholar that he was, truly, I do use that word sparingly, but he was a Hebrew scholar. And he would just sit down, he would just expound upon the scriptures in this very clear way. Let me explain to you the Deuteronomic code. And how it fits into God's blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like riveted on the information, right? Because I'm an information freak. And my wife was like, man, don't you like it better if Dr. Hall would be like this dancing elf? And I'm like, no, actually, that would distract me. I love, and Dr. Hall said to me something that I knew, but I didn't know. And he said to me, you do understand, kind of looking at my my mentality, all of the thoughts that I thought I needed to know, who built the ark, and who rescued God's people, and who killed Goliath, and who was the first king, and who was the second king, and was, was Ahab the, king, the son of Omri, or was Ahab the son of Elah? Okay, all these things that I knew. Which of the judges sacrificed his daughter? Was that Shamgar? Who was that? I knew. And Dr. Hall said to me, not, boy, that's useless information. Have you heard that speech? Why do you know all this content? Really, that's just dumb. You know, you just know things to know things. I've heard that speech, actually. I've heard a lot of people make fun of knowing biblical ideas. I have. In church. You know, I really just, I, w- I just want to, like, feel God. I just want to, I want to kind of know the big things. Don't complicate things. That's what I don't like about you and Ryan, is you complicate things. You make them harder than they need to be. Well, honestly, if we make them harder than they need to be for the sake of being harder than they need to be, then shame on us. Shame, 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 shame on us. May God damn us for doing that. Because that's not what we're trying to do. But to know God is to know more about him, is to love him. So Dr. Hall didn't say, you know stupid information. He said this, in essence. You know a lot of important information, but you don't have the key to unlock it. 
What you don't have is the key. So you have all this information. And what Dr. Hall helped me understand was that much of what I had been learning was nothing more is it EU? Did I spell that right? Yeah. What's that? Phrase that I love, steal it from Michael Horton. Moral therapeutic deism. That's what I had been taught. Not intentional, hear me. I am not making an accusation against any of my Sunday school teachers. Because I don't think they meant to do this. Because I know that when I was doing it, I didn't mean to do it. That's how I know that. Moral means, hey, what's the moral of the story? What's the text? Genesis 22. Oh, okay. Well, then let's talk about what it's like for um, a man to sacrifice his son. Can you imagine having to sacrifice one of your children? Just think about that. How hard would that be? How difficult would that be? Well, what can we learn about this? And then we have a moral for the story. The moral of the story is you should be willing to sacrifice your son like God sacrificed his. Okay. Don't think I can do that. Next story. 1 Samuel chapter 17. You know what that's about? It's on our list, actually. Story of David and Goliath. How many of you have a giant in your life you're having a trouble slaying? Any of you? The giant of economic hardship, the giant of alcoholism, the giant of a, of, a, of a crappy spouse. Like, what is your giant? And you do know that by the power of God and just being courageous, God will help you slay your giant. That's the moral of the story. How many of you, right, Daniel 1, Daniel 4, Daniel 6, all these great stories of the Bible, and we, we teach like that, don't we? Joseph knows how to flee temptation. You need to flee temptation like Joseph. That's the moral of the story. By the way, I'm not saying that none of what I just said isn't true. None of those things are the key, though. None of those things are the key. They're just moral lessons. And by the way, from your children, if you have children at this church, all the way to you, we are against teaching morality for the sake of morality. We're going, no, 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 no. We just don't want to talk about morality. We're not trying to become better people. That's not our goal. Our goal is not, how can we be better people? Our goal is, how can we become like Jesus? Oh, and by the way, that makes us better people. But I'm not trying to make us into better people. I don't want to be a better person. I want to be like Jesus. Well, aren't you saying, wouldn't that make you a better person? Sure. But the problem is, if I just try to be a better person, I can be that without being Jesus. In which case, I have nothing. Do you believe that? Like, do you believe that without Christ's likeness, you have nothing? I believe that. And therefore, I don't want to talk about being a good person. I want to talk about becoming like Jesus Christ. Moral. Therapeutic. You know what? If you had anybody wrong you, you know what it's like to have to forgive somebody? Doesn't it chew you up inside? Huh? Doesn't Nelda? Come on, you're one of the sweetest ladies ever. But I'm sure you've been in a situation where you've got to forgive somebody. It's tearing you up inside, isn't it? Sweetheart, just let it go. We're going to call it forgiveness, but I just want you to think about letting it go. Man, that's good. Man, isn't God amazing how he does this? He's your therapist. So forgiveness becomes just a breathing exercise. Right? Serenity now. Serenity now. 
And this is how we, we teach theology. You need to be good. It'll make you feel better. By the way, I'm not taking a shot at, at like Joel Olstein. I'm, I'm taking a shot at Jim Johnson here and saying, how did I begin to do that? How were so many Bible teachers, and what they were doing was, they weren't saying things that were wrong. You should be a better person. That's a true statement. But they were coming up short. Like it is true that forgiveness is therapeutic. But the problem is you can go through therapy and not be like Jesus. I can know how to let it go that you wronged me and even feel better about it. Like I can do that. I can do a psychological exercise. I really do. I mean, I've learned to let it go. I've learned to just what Nikki did to me. I'm able to kind of let it go. Now, by the way, I mean, I'm really down deep. I kind of hate her still. But the truth is I can smile and greet her on Sunday and I can fake it and make it look good. And honestly, like I don't want to punch her in the face anymore. And so I'm going to label that now as like going through forgiveness. But the real truth is I really don't want a relationship with you. That's why I don't really want to like talk to you. I don't want to work on restoring this relationship. Why would I? I have gained from this relationship that which I needed, which was what? The therapy of feeling better by not holding on to bitterness. That's what I think I've done. But God doesn't do forgiveness like that. How would you like it if God says, yeah, I actually still hate you, Genevieve, for all the terrible things you've done for me. By the way, that is God's perspective of Genevieve, and she knows that. And God doesn't say to Genevieve, yeah, I, just, I, I still really do kind of hate you. I really still have all these problems with you, but I'm willing to just kind of like pretend it's not that. I just don't want to have a relationship with you, but I forgive you. Is that how God forgives? Or does God restore the relationship? Does God grow the relationship? And when the Bible says, forgive one another as in Christ God has forgiven you. Do you understand? Like now all of a sudden forgiveness isn't a therapeutic piece. One of the goals that I want to do when I start my doctoral program is I want to talk about the way that the church has wrongly, psychologically, therapeutically been ruining the true theology of, of sin and confrontation and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation and a restored relationship. That's what the Bible teaches. And we talk about psychological forgiveness. Why? Because it's about therapy. And our preaching is about therapy. You guys ever been, and you, you just, you fill in the problem. And so when I preach on Sunday, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to make you feel better. Using biblical ideas that are true, by the way. Deism. What is that? That is, that God kind of used David to kill Goliath. By how? By training David how to be a skilled marksman. I have no idea if David was amazing. I have no idea how, by the way, I'm not saying he wasn't. I have no idea. I think David could have been a terrible slingshot artist and God could have still done it, don't you? Not saying we shouldn't practice our sling shooting. I'm just saying that's not how God works only. Do you know that? And a lot of our belief in God is deism. After all, he does help those who help themselves. And so a lot of our preaching is, hey, you need to be good so you can feel better about yourself. So this detached God, who really isn't involved in your life, will be pleased with you. Isn't it? I, I think yes. I think if you were to go back and hear preaching that was being preached at Sunnybrook Christian Church for a number of years was many, many times guilty of this, and you didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. And I began to realize 
what Dr. Hall had told me years earlier, which is this. That the story found in 1 Samuel 17 and Daniel 1 and Psalm 22 really aren't human stories. They are divine stories. Nancy stole one piece of my thunder, which is this. The centerpiece of the biblical text is not, forget not just me, it's just not human. See, what happens when that becomes the center? Now, by the way, we might say, hey, God is bigger. So this is the God piece, and that's the human piece. Here's humanity, and everything kind of spins around humanity, and God's bigger than humanity, and so God's holding us in check, but really, it's, it's about us, and it's kind of centered around us, and I, I just have a real hard time that God will allow anybody to go to hell who never had a chance to hear about him, because that's just not fair to humans, and by the way, since humans are the center of the universe, I've got a big problem with the outside God on what he's doing to what the real important things are, because he loves us more than anything, um, because like a rose trampled on the ground, he thought of us above all. Crappy theology. Sung by Michael W. Smith. Thanks for trying. F, right? Do you see the problem with this? The problem with this is I've got the wrong piece at the center. And I was doing that not knowingly because I was studying the Old Testament. And by the way, the New as well. I mean, we do the same moral therapeutic deism to Peter and to Paul. It's not like it's just an Old Testament issue. It's a biblical issue. Sadly enough, we do it to Jesus. We make Jesus a moral example. This is a real problem right now in our church. Jesus is giving a moral example. One of the things I loved about going through the Matthew text recently was for the very first time I began to look at the temptation of Christ. And I realized that although there are tips and techniques that we can learn on how to deal with temptation, okay, there are. We look at Jesus. What did he do? Hey, he quoted scriptures. You should do that too. That'll help you. What else did he do? He commanded Satan to get behind him. Hey, you know what? You should do that too. Anything else? And we could look at all these things that Jesus Christ in fact did and fail to recognize that in the temptation of Christ, what we actually have is the story of the only one who didn't sin when tempted. Yeah, but does that really matter to our theology? Not if you're interested in the moral therapeutic deism. If this is the case, all I need is tip and technique. That's how we teach the Bible. Tip technique. Tip technique. And then, by the way, you never actually encounter Christ. So, by the way, you can actually look back on your life and go, man, it's being really, really hard. My faith isn't really working. Ah. But when I realize it's not about tip and technique, it's about me looking at the text and going, ah, there's a couple things I can learn about how to deal with temptation in the future. But actually, the biggest thing I need to learn from this text is Jesus did it for me. You see the difference? And then when I got to the feeding of the 5,000, yeah, those disciples, Jesus said, hey, you go feed them. And they didn't. Next time, you learn that. Next time, Nelda, as sweet as you are, you need to remember that by the power of God, you can feed 5,000. Do you not believe it? Amen. Give me an amen. Actually, that's not what the text is about at all. I think Jesus says, hey, you feed them. And they rightly go, we can't. And Jesus says, I think it was either Ryan reading from somebody else or coming up with his own brilliant thought. I don't care which one it was. But I love this statement. This is one of the only miracles that Jesus does that no one else ever does. Why? Because John 6. I am the bread of life. Ever who eats on me will never hunger again. Right? Jesus says, you feed them. They go, we can't. He goes, exactly. 
So why don't you take a seat and watch this? But when we tip and technique the feeding of the 5,000, what do we do? We falsely assume we can feed the 5,000 when really it's not about feeding the 5,000. It's about trusting Jesus to feed the 5,000 and we're just handing out loaves and fish. This is what happens when we replace God for the center. Okay? And what Nancy and I and Brenda and whoever else, Ryan or Justin, what we're going to try to do and then collectively together is we're going to hear not only the wonderful things, the first thing I love that people taught me, were Bible ideas and Bible facts. Those are so critical. I hope you know these chapters better than you've ever known them. And you realize that in the Bible, which all has value, that... Genesis 17 and Psalm 22 and, and, uh, and 1 Samuel 17 and Job chapter 1, they are on the landscape of everything being beautiful, the most beautiful of the landscape or the more beautiful. I'm, I'm sure there are, there are lots of chapters, by the way, that we're missing, but not all every chapter of the Bible is equal. I promise you that. The Bible doesn't treat them all as equal because if that was true, the New Testament people would just quote the same Old Testament ones all the time, uh, like evenly distributed, but they don't. The Old Testament... Or the New Testament people love to talk about these mountaintop experiences. These, these pivotal points within God's overarching redeeming plan. So since that's the case, what we begin to learn is not that humanity is at the center. This is like the greatest lie ever. Thank you, John Locke and Immanuel Kant. But that like God is at the center, particularly as creator, and then everything else, actually, humanity, the universe, is that which is created. And the, the, the highlight of that created environment, actually, the pinnacle of the created environment, is, contrary to what is popular today, is humanity. And why is that? Because we are made in the Imago Dei. Okay? That's, that's what the Bible teaches. And when Dr. Hall taught me that, when Dr. Hall taught me that when you're reading Genesis 17, don't, don't be so overwhelmed by the figure of Abraham that you forget God. And don't be so overwhelmed by all these terrible things that are happening to Job. It's, I, I find that one to be the most interesting. People who are going through hardship, and by the way, those of you who know my story, my family has gone through a lot of hardship. Okay, and but the, by, by far and away, the greatest thing I'm grateful for, by far and away, in terms of what my family taught me, was, and this is, I mean, this, this sounds so harsh, it's funny. I tell things that my dad just said like they were the most normal things in the world, and people go, I can't believe anybody would ever say that. But my dad would remind me all the time, son, it's not about you, I really don't care what you think, I really don't care how you feel, I really don't blah, 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 blah. My dad would say those things, and he, I knew he meant he didn't care what I thought or felt, but he wanted me to realize there was something bigger was what he was really, and I knew that actually. I understood what he was saying. I knew he loved me. He loved me better than I ever deserved, my father did. But my dad would just remind me all the time, like you're not the center of the world. You're not even the center of this family. And by the way, the world has been trying to tell me the opposite for years. The world is trying to tell me it's all about me. And I even began to read the Bible and think it was all about me. And so I would even read the Bible and I would have to ask, well, how's that, how's that verse going to change me? I can't even figure it out. Stupid verse. Right? I love asking people, what's your favorite Bible verse? Tell me why. I get this all the time. Because here's what this verse taught me. And I love doing this. I mean, I, I, I kind of had to kind of repent from this. 
Okay? I don't totally repent. I probably could have been nicer in the process. But when, back in my younger days, when I was teaching at the college, I loved in my hermeneutics class, so it had a context. I would literally go around to everybody, and I would say, Brooke, tell me your favorite verse and why. And so Brooke would tell me, uh, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you. And I da 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 And because I had a really hard time growing up, my mom and dad were kind of hard on me. One time, they were, got mad because I got a B. And so I love that verse because it says God loves me even when I get Bs. Uh, that's great. Thank you, Brooke. Anybody else? And somebody else would totally misuse another verse. And then I would go, that verse doesn't mean that. That verse doesn't mean that. That verse doesn't mean that. You're building your life on lies. People start crying, right? <laughs> and what was very interesting about that was, how does that happen? That actually happens when we have the wrong narrative. And so what we're going to do, honestly, what I love about what I don't have to do is I don't have to try to pull a... Some preachers, when they're teaching moral therapeutic deism, always have to pull a rabbit out of a hat. I bet you didn't notice this. David had five stones. And by the way, there are five tribes on the... Actually, there's three. But there are five tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan. That's not a mistake. That's actually... Do you get it? You're going, how did you see that? Right? I mean, somebody preaches this amazing sermon on the story of the prodigal son from the view of the fattened calf, and you're going, wow, that's awesome. Because preachers and teachers are trying to pull out moral little tricks kind of throughout. the. And I, I know what that temptation is. How do I come up with some incredible insight on the text about humanity that will make you feel better? And when Dr. Hall said, it's about God, reveal him. That's just, that changes everything. I don't have to be the magician anymore. I can actually just be like somebody who describes who God is. And by the way, I'd like to talk about who God is from the story of David today. I want to talk about who God is and the guy that we're going to be using as an example of one among many, many, many people the Bible describes. Is, is with, is with his, his name is Job. And so let's talk about who God is and how God interacts. And we're going to look at Job as our example today. That's what we're going to be doing. Do you understand the difference between, hey, let's look at Job and how, how to go through hard times that's not what it's about. If I were to say to you, is Job about how we should deal with hard times as a believer? I mean, honestly, not thinking through it, I'd probably go, yeah, that's exactly what Job's about. No, it's not. Job is about God's prerogative to do to you whatever he wants. Ah, it's not going to sell. <laughs> it won't, will it? No. You'll never sell that book. So you have to write a dumb book called The Prayer of Jabez. <laughs> Which, by the way, is, I mean, truly, it is theologically irresponsible for Bruce Wilkinson to write that book. It is theologically irresponsible. And you want to know why? And uh, hear me, I'm sure Bruce is a great guy. It's, I'm not even, he's, not even a, he's not a heretic. He's not a false teacher. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm telling you, it is, it is theologically irresponsible because what he does is he tells an amazing truth twisted, sideways. And, and I've done that myself. I promise you, I've done that. I've gone back and I've listened and I went, wow, like I've written books, they're called sermons, like the prayer of Jabez. I've done that. And what Nancy and I want to do is not that. And we don't want you to just know these chapters. What we want you to be able to see is what God is doing through, and then we'll give an example. Because Habakkuk 3 isn't, let's talk about a prophet and how hard it is to be a prophet. No, Habakkuk 3 is, God... Like, I don't see you working in the world. 
Especially, this is where it gets more complicated, God. Like, I don't see you working exactly like you promised covenantally to my, to my ancestors. What am I going to do, God? And God says, trust me. Like, trust me. Habakkuk 3. And so when there are no longer sheep in the pens, that's Deuteronomy, I promise I'll put sheep in your pens. And there's no longer like olives on the olive trees, which God promised he would put there. And when you no longer have any grapes on the vines, which God promised, by the way, that they would know that he was with them. When you no longer have that, what do you do? And, and Habakkuk says, hate to let the cat out of the bag, but it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Even when these things do not happen, yet will I trust you. And I will wait for the day in which you will judge those that you are now using to judge us. A nation more evil than us to judge us. Now that will erase my board. If you tried to convince me that the Canadians were going to come down and judge America for the wickedness of America, I would go, you've never been to Canada. They are more wicked than us. They are more godless than us. And it makes no sense to me why God would ever use another nation to judge a nation more righteous than that first nation. Amen? And we all go, amen. And God goes, you have forgotten my plan at my prerogative. Something you've heard me preach on lately that I will continue to go off on because I keep seeing it in the scriptures. Why? Because instead of preaching this... I get to preach not moralism, but Christ-likeness. Not therapy, but biblical wholeness. And not deism, but God's sovereign, righteous prerogative being worked out in us and in me. And that's the difference. And so I'm grateful for those teachers that didn't know what they were doing and got it wrong. I'm so grateful that I know what I know. And I owe a debt to every teacher I've had, even ones that I've forgotten. And then the Dr. Halls in my life that gave me the key. That basically said, can I just give you something that maybe you didn't have before? And I still remember sitting in the back of that Hebrew exegetical class. We were going through Deuteronomy at the time. And I remember thinking to myself, this changes everything. This fundamentally changes everything. Which, by the way... It doesn't mean that you get to spit on your past. I love that. Even the, even the disciples didn't go, yeah, those stupid people who taught us dumb stuff. They didn't spit on it. I, don't, I really don't. That's why I look at, back at my heritage. I look at those, at back at, at, at those people who did the best that they could in the time that they had. Um, and I'm grateful, actually. But the worst things you can do is just look at where you've come from and just spit on it. Don't spit on it. But also don't, like, glorify it. Like, be able to what? And this is what I love about the gospel. That's very core. Cool. My last thought. Is that what we are called to do is repent, which means to change our mind. And then to trust this new profound truth that God has given us. So somehow God was able to hit a straight lick with a crooked stick when I had the order wrong. I really am grateful. But it also explained why. Imagine, imagine what happens when you have humanity and then you have God. And which one's bigger? God. Imagine what happens when you have something weak and everything's revolving. This bigger thing is revolving around this weaker thing. What happens? How many of you have gone through much of your life and it just feels like this spiritually? Right? And you're just, you're dizzy. You know what I'm talking about? It just feels like it's, I'm dizzy. Like I can't, 
I can't figure out why my sister is crippled, and I can't figure out why my sister lost all, lost all her hair because she has colon or because she has at the time leukemia. Like I just I can't figure out. I just understand what's happening. And you want to know why? It's because I had like what God owed our family, and then I had like God around the outside and our family at the center, and it just felt like this: whack, whack, whack. And then all of a sudden I realized, wow, it's God at the center and my family's around the outside. And then, by the way, it still hurts. It did, the pain didn't go away. But I understood it better. Thank you, Joe. Is it, is, it, is it wise for me, sweetheart, to only take that which is good from God? No. For the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. Now that's Bible. Thoughts? Told you I'd be done early. Look at that, 24 minutes. That's crazy. Here's what you're going to be thinking. You're going to be thinking, well, then why do you waste our time all of the other moments? <laughs> you should be able to do this every week. Come on, Canadian. Um, thoughts? Does that not excite you guys? Like, I'm, I'm true. I mean, if you ever get to see Dr. Hall, you need to say, hey, thank you for fixing Jim Johnson because he was a mess. Um, as boring as you were, Dr. Hall, I mean, I really want to thank you for this. Anybody that can teach me Hebrew has to be brilliant. I wanted to give a standing ovation, but I can't clap. Oh. <laughs> well, let me pray for us, and not just for, not just for right now, but literally, pray for this time. Um, listen, by the way, we'll be dealing with stuff both exegetically, meaning in the, in the meat grinding of it, and then the eating of the wonderful burgers and sausage we're going to make, okay? So there's both sides of this. We're going to be kind of working through this meal, and sometimes making sausage just looks gross, right? And hard and difficult. And if you're having a hard time with the grinding aspect of this, man, I know that Nancy and Brenda and myself, and even lots of you who are as gifted as we are, we don't believe that we're the most gifted for we're teaching. Um, if, if there's anything that we can do to help you come alongside and look at a text theologically or exegetically, we would love, like that's why we're here. Is it not, right? Like, it's what, it's what I want to do, right, Nancy? Right, Brenda? Like, this is what we want to do more than anything else. So if there's any way, in any way, that we can help you with that, I literally would cut off my arms for you, biblically speaking. So right now I'm helping a guy that doesn't even go to our church <laughs> walk through all this stuff. And he said, hey, is it okay? I don't really come to Sunnybrook. Is it okay? And I said, hey, dude, follower of Jesus Christ, I'm here. So we're here for you guys. Let's pray. God, thank you for being at the center and never moving. For God, to you to get off your throne would undo the universe. It's not even an option, God. So when I say that, it's just kind of a hypothetical wow to me. That you stand at the center, always stand at the center. It is the only reason where I've ever gained stability is when I recognize in the pain of my circumstances, the difficulty of my circumstances, the unknowing of my circumstances, that you are God. that you are God. And I thank you for this book that has some amazing stories with people like Abraham and David and even Goliath and Ahab and Jezebel. That, Father, there are incredible stories of faithfulness and faithlessness. And at the center stands Jesus, who is, in fact, God. He is you. He is your Son, sent purposefully to redeem us because you will not abandon us, because you will not abandon yourself, because you will be glorified. God, thank you for forgiving me 
and giving me a wisdom that I didn't deserve through Dr. Hall and even in my younger days, other teachers that didn't know what they were doing, but you were kind through them. Therefore, God, I pray that we would teach and preach boldly, not always concerned that we have said it right, but that you, the one who holds all things right, will make it right, even when we don't know what we're doing. Which never is permission to be lazy or irresponsible or dumb. But it does give us peace. Just understanding that I have been placed and will always be on the side of things. Thank you for leading in all times and in all circumstances. It is to your glory we dedicate this time. Um, Father, may it truly benefit us and others, and may it be to know you our greatest joy. In Christ's name we give you thanks. Amen. Amen. Love you guys.